Celeste Katzmarston is our guest in Boston, Massachusetts. Celeste, good morning. Good morning. Celeste, I know, a question without notice, but I'm just wondering, with all this attacking, it's mostly in Europe, I think, of paintings in galleries. I mean, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts is a magnificent museum. And I think there's a big exhibition there on at the moment of photographs, I think. Um, is anyone talking about, like, are they going to post extra security guards? Or what do you think should happen here? I haven't seen that immediately. I, I think what usually happens, to be honest with you, uh, when there are uh, acts of, I don't know, vandalism or civil disobedience or whatever you want to call it, protest, you know, usually what we see is that there's a bump in security for a little while and then it kind of eases off and then there's another problem and then we go through the cycle again. So uh, that's typically been my my observation. There are probably certain times of the year when people are more are more cautious when the crowds are bigger, um, that kind of thing. But um, I haven't noticed any mass mobilization, uh, you know, forgive the pun, uh, in Boston. I I wonder if, I mean, if there are a lot of crowds around a painting and somebody tried this sort of stunt, because maybe they they try it when there's not a lot of people around. I mean, what do you think could happen? It's possible that the crowd could turn on them. This could be a very dangerous situation for these uh, people. It it could be, and I think that in the the kinds of cases that you're talking about, if if I'm right, this is usually a few people acting uh, in a way where they're not, you know, they're not setting a painting on fire per se. They maybe oh, they're goodness. throwing something at it. And of course, you know, a lot of these paintings, these sort of uh, masterworks or classic works are guarded. They're roped off. They have glass over them, and you know there are a lot of precautions. I think that they take in museums just to preserve the integrity of the work outside of, you know, somebody like throwing soup yeah. on it to make a statement about global warming. So, um, you know, those protective measures should help. But I don't know. Riot in the museum. Global warming oh. riot in the museum. That that could be a story. I well, I remember that bloke who threw the cake at, was it the Mona Lisa? See, that was kind of, we thought at that time that was an outlier. Whether it um, whether it inspired these other people, I don't know. But that was the bloke. Remember, he hid the cake and went in on, in a wheelchair or something? And I think, I don't know whether the crowd attacked him, but... Uh, I'm not even, you know, arguing in favour of people taking the law into their own hands, but I couldn't blame them if they did, Celeste. Uh, by the way, John in Melbourne, did you even take a Powerball? You better believe I did. I spent thousands of dollars a year trying to win <laughs> to get off this program. <clears throat> no, I mean to get off these hours. Now, um, I, you know, I love it, Celeste. I love talking to everybody. Uh, this is a possibly a difficult time of the year in the United States because of what they've called a, a triple-demic. This is where, well, all sorts of things kind of meet. With COVID and the flu, obviously. What else is going to happen? Right. So there's been this surge. It's actually quite frightening. Some children's hospitals and wards, uh, children's wards and hospitals are at or near capacity because of this surge of kids getting this virus known as RSV, which might not be a big deal to you or me, but can be very, very dangerous, causes extreme breathing problems in very small children and babies. And so now we're seeing this combination of a usual flu season, uh, people uh, still spreading around COVID, a lot of people not getting the, the new bivalent booster that is adjusted for the new strains, 
and RSV. And in some senses, people not getting vaccinated is a problem, but we've also been isolated and masking for so long, even taking kids out of school, working from home, that people are just more susceptible to all kinds of sicknesses. And so the things we did to protect ourselves during the pandemic to some extent, not saying that those things were wrong at all, probably saved countless lives, but um, some of the the isolation has led to decreases in immunity to to make certain sicknesses uh, worse or just to make people more likely to get sick at all. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I I wonder, but every time we think that the pandemic is sort of going away or ebbing away, it comes back, especially in the winter months. Yeah, I think that, and and I think you and I have talked about this, but certainly, uh, COVID COVID is not going anywhere. It's going to continue to mutate. It's continue to be around, and our expectation is that we will probably get vaccinated for it every year perpetually, the same way we get vaccinated for flu. Um, there is no vaccine for RSV, which is the, the respiratory illness that can really be dangerous to little children. The only way that you build up an immunity to it is by exposure. So that's a different story. And then the final thing that's really complicating all of this is that the symptoms of each of these sicknesses is so similar that without testing, it's really hard to know which one you have. Oh, great. All righty. Now, we uh, turn our attention to the what are termed the midterms election and midterm elections, which are on in, well, now less than two weeks. But even after the election or after the votes are counted or, you know, they, they will be counted in most places by now, because the election's on the Tuesday. It's now Thursday in the US. That doesn't necessarily mean anything, as we know, because some of these elections end up in court and increasingly so isn't it what's going on at the moment yeah there's this explosion of lawsuits surrounding elections in the united states this has become very common i mean i've been covering elections and election administration and and voting procedure for a very long time and there are people who file legal challenges maybe somebody you know isn't qualified to be a candidate they don't live where they say they did or they don't have enough signatures to get them to qualify for the ballot or something like that these kind of legal challenges are normal and we see them all the time but now we are much more seeing people uh, sort of holding up or derailing the process by having these very, um, very specific, very technical legal challenges to the law or to the way the election was carried out. And, um, you know, a lot of the outcomes of decisions could be decided by the courts. I'm, you know, you are a, a, a better uh, historian of American history probably than I am. And, you know, we've talked, I think, about uh, Bush versus Gore and yes. elections getting decided in courts and not by people, not by the the process that we have established. And that's that's a big change. I mean, what if we what if Bush versus Gore is, you know, not going to be an outlier? What if more and more elections yeah. get decided in court, especially close call elections? So that's the interesting thing in it with Bush versus Gore, because it kind of began at the top. The most high profile dispute or an election disputed election that ended up in court was a presidential election that had massive uh, consequences because we know September 11 happened uh, less than a year later. Who knows what would have happened if Al Gore had been president compared with George W. Bush. You know, the fact that Bush was president and then, you know, history unfolds and it ends up with Donald Trump. What we're talking about, though, with this is, you know, state elections. It could be... Um, House of Reps or Senate as well. We're talking about 
arguments already about voter ID, whether you need that or whether that should be enforced or, um, you know, well, reapportioning or redistricting, as they, they call it, a redrawing of the boundaries, which are in some states mostly Republican-controlled, and you can't argue about that. Um, they are redrawn like gerrymandering. It's it's absolutely appalling what's going on. Um, how long the polls can be open, that's also up for grabs. Uh, all sorts of things. Now, in Australia, we have one overarching electoral commission that looks after it so that there is a standardised rule in every state, territory, city, town, you know, outhouse, doghouse, whatever, around the country. The US doesn't have that, and I think you are the poorer for it, Celeste. We definitely have this this very, very varied patchwork of uh, even within a city, within a state, the rules can be different. And they certainly vary very widely across states. And I think that, um, you know, these these issues will generally be litigated within a state um, and, and not taken to the federal level. But as you say, there's you know, this sort of just adds a whole extra layer to elections, which is um, a lot of judgeships in the United States are um, uh, political offices. They are appointed or elected. And, you know, we hope that the justice system works as it should and um, that the political leanings of the person on the bench are not relevant. But it, it is adding another measure of, of um, you know, distance from the will of the voters, possibly. Yeah. What if somebody who's a politically inclined judge tends to side with um, the arguments, the legal arguments of the candidate of the political party he or she prefers? I mean, you can see where that goes. And that's that's kind of worrisome. Also, I think it just generally undermines confidence in the election system, which is something, as you know, in the United States, we already have a problem with. So it's not saying that people shouldn't challenge a law, if they don't think it's right or if they don't think it's applied fairly. But it, it certainly indicates that a lot of turbulence in the way we um, carry out democracy in this country. Or what's called democracy. You say, oh, it's mostly at state level, but that has huge ramifications as well because it is the state, usually secretaries of state at a state level or governors, who determine how the elections are conducted, federal elections. So, yes, um, these state decisions or people voting in various states, that has a direct effect on federal elections because those local secretaries of state determine hours of voting, who can vote, whether or not there's a voter ID is necessary, all those sorts of things. They are, there's a forever attempt, again, mostly in Republican states, to restrict people voting when there should be you know, attempts to encourage as many people to vote as possible. Even now, you know, 50, 60 percent of the people vote, sometimes less than that. In Australia, it's about 95 percent because we have compulsory voting or mandatory turning up at the polls anyway. That's not the case in the US. So there should be an encouragement for people to vote, shouldn't there? Uh, personally, I think there should. I don't think that there's anything wrong with it. encouraging people to vote, making voting easier, making it so that you can vote at more times in more ways uh, to encourage participation. Yeah, for sure. I think that, you know, to your point about 
who makes these decisions, who sets up these regulations uh, at the state or local level. We have a lot of people running for office in the United States who are what we call election deniers, who do not believe that Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States, that our elections are rigged, um, that there is some sort of vast conspiracy going on with, with the way we vote for people. And that's obviously very, very disturbing. That's been something we've been talking about a lot. But the thing is, some of those candidates are gaining ground in secretary of state races, in governor races, and for other offices. And there, there could, there is uh, sort of a low key or under the radar um, uh, movement, I should say, uh, for people who are very politically inclined and who may be election deniers to also become part of the infrastructure of their local voting precinct, yeah. to be poll watchers, to be self-described poll security also. Hmm. Like people showing up with guns at poll sites is sure. becoming a thing in the United States. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and the thing with that is, are they concerned about their own elections that they're elected? Do they then think that maybe something uh, wrong happened with the election or is it only when the other side is elected? Well, I think the uh, I, I think the real world uh, evidence of that is is pretty clear that people are generally not going to contest an election in which they have been announced to be the winner. Uh, Donald Trump didn't. I mean, he in 2016, he was saying the election was rigged before he won. Yeah. It, so, of course, yeah, it's, it's it's a legitimate question. The answer, of course, is one of those suspension of disbelief things. It's amazing, isn't it, with the uh, way that the 2020 election was rigged. And how it was only rigged at the presidential election uh, level. You know, all the uh, other uh, Republicans managed to get elected and, and that part wasn't rigged, apparently. It's the best it's thing that we can do is right. reporters. The best thing that I try to do is just to explain that there is no evidence of widespread voter fraud. There is no evidence of fraud that could have changed the outcome of these elections. And people like to feel that they're sort of uh, the system is against them or there's something that they have figured out that nobody else sees. And I, I maybe that can be satisfying in some ways. That doesn't make it true. All right. Speaking of reporters and Celeste Katz-Marston is our guest in Boston. This really interesting insight into the last president uh, has been revealed. Now, um, Bob Woodward, of course, famous, always famous for uh, the Watergate expose, and uh, that caused Richard Nixon to resign from office in 1974. Well, he's written at least, what, three books about Donald Trump, um, and he recorded many of the conversations, the phone conversations that he had with the now ex-president, or current president, depending on who you believe, and uh, they've now been released, what, 20 hours or so, I think, of these phone conversations. What what do they reveal? What do we now know about, uh, well, both men, really, Bob Woodward and Donald Trump? This is super unusual. It is not common for people to release full, essentially unedited, raw tapes of these kinds of conversations. They're definitely, you know, seeing the sausage of a news story being made is very different than what you see on TV, which is always very packaged and presented and the questions are asked in a certain way so that they can get to the material that they want but also sort of explain to the the audience what they are asking where they're trying to go this is very very different and it's super unusual to me it's fascinating because it really gives you insight not only into 
uh, sort of less guarded moments of the former president uh, speaking about himself and about the world, but also the craft of how do you how do you conduct a brilliant interview? And sometimes, as Bob Woodward has, uh, you know, admitted in uh, in his own words, sometimes you mess up. Sometimes you go too far. Sometimes you don't go far enough. But seeing how this actually comes together is, uh, I think it's fascinating. So what have we learned about the four years of the Trump presidency? Well, you know, it's even the behaviors that he uh, that he demonstrates in talking to Woodward, like he'll call him up at some weird hour of the night and just start talking to him and have Cause, a cause long that, I'm sorry. Talk. But the thing is, he must know that it was Woodward that helped bring down Nixon. And he does. Trump yeah. is calling Woodward. He is ringing the most famous investigative journalist in the world. And you know, it's not he's not there waiting and, and then Woodward is calling him, begging for an interview. He's ringing him. Well, I, I certainly have not interviewed Donald Trump for as many hours as Bob Woodward. But in my experiences of covering him and speaking to him on the phone and in person, this is not a guy who gets tired of his own voice very quickly. Uh, I think he he likes to he likes to talk. He likes to talk and he likes to talk about himself. And uh, if, if speaking to such an esteemed reporter uh, about himself is, is uh, I don't know, gives him a sense of importance and power, I could see why, uh, you know, he would enjoy that feeling because it sort of fits in with his general profile. But you get to know a lot about him. And, uh, you know, there's some examples that have come out. I haven't listened to all the tapes yet, but, you know, some examples of asking, I think Woodward asks him at one point, uh, you know, he says, you and I have something in common, which is that we're white men and we come from sort of a privileged background. And can you sort of see how people who maybe don't come from the background and haven't enjoyed the opportunities and the benefits that we have, you know, how that would lead to sort of pain or, or worry? And Trump's just like, no. He's like, he, he accused Woodward of, quote unquote, drinking the Kool-Aid. Mm, and okay. he just can't, he cannot see it from that perspective. Well, I don't think empathy was everything that any, ever anything that uh, Donald Trump has been accused of possessing. Uh, now, one of the things um, that we always were, was always talked about is what would happen with a self-driving car if there's an accident, maybe somebody was killed. Like, who is responsible? Is it the manufacturer of the car? Is it someone who's in the car at the time? Are we about to kind of go down a legal path when it comes to these? Well, there is a big case right now that, that has just been revealed, or at least a big investigation, several investigations uh, going on currently involving Tesla. And obviously Elon Musk in the news because of Tesla, because of SpaceX, certainly because of what looks like, looks like, I'm trying to hedge here a little bit, the, uh, the conclusion of his deal to buy Twitter coming down in uh, a few days here. But yeah, there's uh, basically the question is, did Tesla or has Tesla or Elon Musk oversold the ability of its cars and the autopilot program? Uh, to be self-driving, to be autonomous. Um, and it, it looks like it's going to be a difficult investigation to uh, to conduct and then to prove because there are a lot of hedging things Tesla and Musk have said about the ability of the car to drive itself. And they're saying, well, you always have to have your hand on the wheel. You have to have something in the driver's seat. It doesn't provide full autonomy. But then they get on investor calls where he's been quoted saying things like, it's probably better than a human driver. 
and uh, you know videos on their website that say you see somebody sitting in the in the driver's seat, but the car is driving itself. So the big question is, did Tesla or Musk ever mislead people into this sort of false sense of confidence that the car can completely drive itself, which from the evidence that I've seen and read, I don't think that car is driving itself alone. Mm. All right. And finally, this morning, Boston. Oh, dear. It is now the second most expensive city for renters in the United States. New York is number one. San Francisco is always a very expensive place to rent, but Boston is now the second best or second worst, we might say. Why is it so expensive to rent in Boston? And how much yeah, does it you cost? Know, it, it is expensive. And, and you know, as you know, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. My uh, my home that, uh, you know, lived in for a, quite a while there uh, have been renting out to somebody else. Um, but, yeah, the there's like... Uh, how can I say the housing crisis in, in Boston has been a big issue. There are uh, new new apartments being built and these high rise buildings going up that we see uh, under construction. But in terms of affordable housing or sort of more moderate housing, the stock is pretty low. Um, we're actually thinking about trying to buy a house uh, around the Boston area in the in the next year or so. And the prices are wild, really, really wild. So I think it's, it's not that there is an inventory in Boston, but the kind of inventory that's being uh, built and built up uh, is, is pretty high-end stuff. What are you thinking about buying? I'm probably thinking about buying, uh, you know, a, a few miles, maybe five miles or something like that out of the city, close enough, yeah. but to get more space and maybe a little land. I mean, I don't know. I've been living in apartments for, I don't know, I want to say like 25, 30 years or something. So I'm okay with it, but, you know. I guess I guess it's time to grow up, maybe. Exactly. Maybe. Oh dear. Move to the mighty suburbs. Celeste, thank you very much for that. As always, a comprehensive wrap of what's going on. Uh, we'll be back with you in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Celeste Katzmaston in Boston, Massachusetts. We thank her as always. Unbiased view, as you can tell. <laughs> 